اعوذ باللہ من الشیطان الرجیم بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم ان دا نیم آف اللہ دا موسٹ گریچیس ایور میسیفل ڈیئر لسنرس ویلکم بیک ٹو بریک فاسٹ شو آن دا وائس آف اسلام ریڈیو براڈ کاسٹنگ فرام دا لارجسٹ ماسک آف ویسٹ دا بیٹل فار ٹو ماسک ڈیئر لسنرس مائی نیم از شاہ المنیر احمد اینڈ آئی ایم گوئنگ ٹو بی یو ہوسٹ فار دا نیکسٹ ٹو آورس اینڈ ان دوز نیکسٹ ٹو آورس لسنرس وی ہیو پرپیئر ٹو سیگمنٹس segments which we will discuss from the Islamic perspective as well and also what we want is that we need your support during those segments as well so you can call them anytime the number is 0208-687-7878 or you go on our social at Voice of Islam UK dear listeners I know it's breakfast time or maybe you just woke up and you're preparing your breakfast um, it is as I always say It is the most important meal during the day. Do enjoy your breakfast. And while enjoying your breakfast, also do enjoy the show. Um, I said before, we have two segments prepared. The first segment is that the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Hazrat Mr. Masood Ahmed, may Allah be helper, calls for dis- de-escalation of Israel-Hamas war. Uh, for that, we have a pre-recording with Dr. Daniel Lewin. And we will have Imam Tamim Abu Dhaka from Jordan Life in the show as well. Uh, then after the 8 o'clock news, we will talk about Rare Disease Day. Dear listeners, um, I th- hope you know about that because today, the, the 29th of February, this is the day where we basically do celebrate the Rare Disease Day. Always, It is always the last day of February where we... This, in this rare disease, so today, we discuss about diseases, especially those diseases which we never heard about. And unfortunately, there are so many. And even for that, we have um, Dr. Muhammad Iqbal, who will join us uh, live. And after that, we will have two pre-recordings with Professor Simon Hills and Ms. Dania Nasser. So, dear listeners, you can see, as you already have heard it, we have the packed show for you and uh, we will go through that with the Islamic perspective which is very important because this is what Voice Islam Radio is all about in the Voice Islam Radio we want you to know more about Islam the reason is that we live in a very turbulent time we live in a time where Islam has been presented in the media in a very wrong way and we are here to show you the truth about Islam to show you why Islam is a peaceful religion and why Islam can integrate in any, in any society. And as a lot of Muslims who have been brought up here in the society or, or are already a part of the society, they are basically showing us that we can, Muslim Islam can be a part of the society. So the listeners, um, as I said, uh, we are going to discuss these two topics, but before we do so, let's go and see what The headlines are of the newspapers. So, if you haven't started reading the newspapers, um, the Daily Telegraph and the Times, and also the Financial Times, all report on the front pages that the Chancellor is considering scrapping or reducing the tax breaks for non-doms. So, the rule allows, the rules allow some wealthy individuals whose main home is overseas not to pay tax on foreign earnings. According to the Financial Times, the idea is on a secret project list of potential revenue-raising measures. 
on its website. The Guardian notes it would be poaching one of Labour's key fiscal policies, making it an option the Times describes as particularly continuous or as f- um, Financial Times calls it politically charged. The Daily Mail suggests creating a huge problem for Labour would be an added benefit from the Conservatives but stresses it may not be announced in the budget if it's not deemed necessary and analysis in the Telegraph suggests axing the status of is no silver bullet as it may drive some non-dobs out of the UK while other could use offshore trusts. DI predicts that Jeremy Hunt's budget is unlikely to fix what he admitted is the unfairness of the child benefit system. Two parents both earning £49,000 may claim it in full, West family relying on a single income above 60000 receiving nothing. A treasury source tells the paper addressing the issue is no longer affordable. The editorials in both The Sun and The Times examine the concern about uh, MPs' safety. The Sun uh, protests that guards shouldn't be needed for politicians. Instead, it urges police chiefs to be willing to send in the cops and enforce the law. The time backs Sushi Sunak's call, saying this assault on our national life cannot continue. In his editorial, the Delhi Express urged Parliament not to shy away from debating assisted dying. It welcomes a Commons Committee report, saying it offers a valuable contribution but doesn't go far enough. And The Guardian's front page says the world's largest review of ultra-processed food has directly linked into 22 health risks, health risks. According to the Times, the research involving nearly 10 million people indicates that these foods are associated with a 55% greater risk of dying young. They are also linked to heart diseases, cancer and mental health disorders. The review's author suggests the findings provide a rational to, uh, rational to develop public health measure, measures to reduce exposure to foods such as fizzy drinks, ready meals and surgery cereals. The, daily, the mail highlights the review limitations as people who consume a lot of fast food tend also to have unhealthy lifestyle. I mean, I have been saying this for such a long time that I'm an anti-fizzy drink person. I don't like fizzy drinks. You know, even um, those fizzy drinks where it says no sugar added, I'm also against them. Um, I just say it's, it's. I feel it's kind of a poison for the body to have fizzy drinks. And uh, as I already said that these are those uh, food which you can say... Um, uh, that uh, the risk of dying young can increase while having these foods like I just mentioned fizzy drinks ready meals or sugary cereals and here this is very important as well because uh, I, I'm not using any sugar cereals anymore um, it is very difficult of course for the children to explain them as well that you should stay away from that and also fast food I mean I was waiting for that and I'm glad the Daily Mail Sorry, the mail has highlighted that that fast food is something you should af- uh, should avoid. It is not healthy at all. I mean, best food made is always that which is made in your own kitchen. 
you it doesn't matter you can i mean everyone can i mean dolly pop people upon him yes he would make his own food he would make his he would wash, wash his own clothes he would look after the household as well so a man can stand and make food for the family as well and he will enjoy it as well so as i said best food is made in the kitchen of your own home just stand there and make your own food you will enjoy it and if you have if you desire fizzy drinks trust me dear listener the best way is have a bottle of water next to you and use that water i'm t- i'm saying that because i used to be very addicted to fizzy drinks and uh, it wasn't good for me uh um i'm very grateful that i just realized very early i knew that f- i knew that f- drinking coke or fanta is not good for the body and as i said i was kind of addicted to that and slowly slowly i got away with that well, because i started drinking a lot of water more than usual and now i'm trying to drink at least 2 or 3 liter water a day per day so i think that this is so i'm i'm very grateful for them to do for the guardians and uh, the times and the mails to hi- that they have highlighted these things it is very important that we stay healthy while eating healthy um, products as well the uh, listeners both the daily mirror and daily star report on a claim that the serial killer fred west had access to a network of tunnels near his home that he could have used to carry out and cover up his crimes the paper suggests that are uh, there are 22 miles of interconnected tunnels beneath cluster and the daily telegraph writes it's not quite all uh, it's not quite all creatures great as small but half of england's cathedrals have opened their doors to dogs the association of english cathedrals says that the pets are so important in people's lives especially since the pandemic that some buildings have now begun to open as dog friendly spaces when when they said that um dogs are basically they're very important for in people's lives in the holy quran it is mentioned about people in the, in, who lived in the caves uh that who basically were looking um basically yeah way try to escape from the uh, roman soldiers they they had dogs um prepared when uh, who would tell them that the army of romans are coming so dogs are especially very important as mentioned in the holy quran as well yes um uh, people always say that muslims they don't like dogs or that we are i mean it's totally wrong it is, as i said it's mentioned in the holy quran they are mentioned in the holy quran as well and um We, we it's not it's not like we say dogs are not allowed inside the house of course they are allowed i mean god has said look after his creature this is what we do so um, i just wanted to point that out as well um and also leading the front page of the daily mirror you can see a picture of shadow chancellor rachel rees and a different angle on the approaching spring budget the paper reports that according to miss rees if labor win the next general election they will inherit the worst economic challenge since the second world war that is enough for the paper to twist the famous harold macmillan quote for its headline never had it so bad also prominently featured is a picture of prince harry and meghan after prince losses lost the high court challenge over his security when he is in the uk the paper says the decision hits hopes of healing a rift with king charles 
You are not such special headlines in Metro as it covers the Prince Harry case, a bombshell ruling. The front page largely recalls how the Prince's security status was downgraded when he stopped being a work royal and how an assassination threat from Al-Qaeda came in the wake of his memoir Spare being published last year. In the book, Prince Harry recalled how he killed 25 Taliban fighters while serving on board in Afghanistan in 2012. The Daily Mail continues the royal theme with pictures of the Prince and Princess of Wales with the broad question, what is going on with the royals? Prince William pulled out last minute from attending a memorial service for his godfather, King Constantine of Greece, earlier this week. And Catherine has not been seen in public for a number of weeks as she recovers from abdominal surgery. Also on the front page, the paper joins the Times in covering the Prime Minister's mob rule comments with the paper calling it thinly veiled criticism of the softly, softly approach taken by police. Also, um, the Times says, safe Britain from mob rule, Sunak tells police, is a headline on the front page of the Times as it reports on the Prime Minister's meeting with police chiefs about what the paper calls intimidatory Gaza protests. According to the paper, Mr. Sunak called for the nation's democratic, democratic institutions to have better protection from protesters. His comment come after a number of MPs come homes have been targeted in protests calling for Gaza ceasefire. And talking about ceasefire, the listeners today, we will talk about that as well um, in the first segment. And so, uh, if, as I said, if you want to be a part of the show, you can call in any time. The number is 0208 Um The listeners, Liverpool and Manchester United are going to face in the FA quarterfinal these two teams, um, I mean, they obviously this rivalry which we have seen with the, in these two teams is huge, is very huge. And um, yesterday we had FA Cup matches. Manchester won one nil against Nottingham. Liverpool's youngsters they won three nil against Southampton. And with youngsters, I mean. Those academic players who also won uh, just a few days ago the League Cup against Chelsea. It is impressive uh, how they have, I mean, how much how fast they have evolved to become professional football players. And it must be very huge for them as well. I'm pretty sure Jurgen Klopp is proud of them. Uh, Chelsea also won 3 2 against Leeds, and Wolves won 1 0 against Brighton. And on Tuesday, we had Bernard Murth against Leicester City, and Leicester City won 1 0. Uh, Blackburn Rovers and Newcastle played 1 1, and after 120 minutes, they went into penalties where Newcastle United won, and Manchester City won 6 2 against Luton, or let's say Haaland won 6 2 against Luton as he scored five goals against them, which was very impressive. Uh, to score. Uh, dear listeners, this is it from the news perspective. We're going for a short break, and after that short break, as I said, we will discuss our first segment, which is that the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community calls for de escalation of us Israel Hamas war. Let me know your answer. What do you think? 
how can we achieve world peace? I mean, His Holiness has spoken about this many, many times. He went to different countries and he gave solution from the Islamic perspective, how to maintain peace. Let me know you answer. What do you think? What is the best way to maintain to, or to achieve uh, world peace? The number is 0208-687-787. Or you go know social at Voice of Islam. You can leave their comment. But please let me know what is the best way to achieve world peace. Um, as I said, we are going now for a short break. And after the short break, we will be back with our first segment. So do me a favor. Stay tuned with the Voice of Islam radio. Persecuted for your beliefs, jailed for your faith, and exiled from your homeland, but you refuse to turn to bitterness or vengeance. Instead, His Holiness has emerged as a leader of wisdom and compassion, a champion of nonviolence among nations. No society can truly succeed unless it guarantees the rights of all of its peoples, including religious minorities. Whether they're Ahmadiyya, Muslims in Pakistan, or Baha'i in Iran, or Coptic Christians in Egypt. I would like very much to confirm my support for the work that His Holiness and the Ahmadi Muslim community are doing, particularly in London. Even I didn't know when I was elected, then my name even will be proposed. The election is the same as the Pope is elected, but without smoke. I know you are a regular uh, visitor and speaker to parliaments and assemblies around the world, whether it's the US Congress or the, or the European Parliament. Let it be clear that I am not speaking in support or favor of any particular individual country. What I wish to say is that all forms of cruelty, wherever they exist, must be eradicated and stopped, regardless of whether they are perpetrated by the people of Palestine, the people of Israel, or the people of any other country. In this we are allied with His Holiness, a courageous champion of religious freedom and of peace. I'm very glad that our movement like yours will do something to correct this image. Islam means peace. I should thank Your Holiness for your highly enlightened sermon, not only uh, for the Ahmadis, but I would say for all mankind. Love for all and hatred for none. And this message not only for Muslims, but for everybody. You are a man, though of humble beginnings, your leadership has made you a figure of global prominence. And you have become a guide for millions of Muslims worldwide. Simplified answers to frequently asked questions. What is the difference between Ahmadi Muslims and non-Ahmadi Muslims? This needs a very lengthy answer, but briefly, the main difference is in the belief concerning the advent of the Imam Mahdi, the Prince Messiah, and the reformer of the latter days. Non-Ahmadi Muslims expect that he will be sent by God in fulfilment of the prophecies of the Holy Prophet and are waiting for his advent. On the other hand, Ahmadi Muslims believe that his advent has already taken place and that the prophecies were fulfilled in the person of Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad of Qadian, who also claimed that his advent fulfilled the prophecies that were mentioned in the scriptures of different religions about the coming of a reformer in the latter days.
The followers of these religions, including non-Ahmadi Muslims, are still waiting for his advent. As for Ahmadi Muslims, as a result of believing that his advent has already taken place, they enjoy many blessings that other Muslims are deprived of. For example, Ahmadi Muslims enjoy the institution of Khilafat, which means that they are all united under one leadership and are escorted by a guided spiritual leader, while other Muslims remain divided and they disagree amongst themselves concerning many issues. Also, Ahmadi Muslims follow the true teaching of Islam as a result of following the teachings of the reformer of the age. The very important difference between the two is that Ahmadi Muslims believe in a living God whose attributes remain the same at all times, while other Muslims believe that some of his attributes have become idle. For example, his speech with his sincere servants. They think that he used to speak in the past, but for some reason, at the present time, he has stopped communicating with his servants through revelations. to the Voice of Islam Radio. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB via the internet 24 hours a day. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful, dear listeners, welcome back to the Breakfast Show on the Voice of some Radio. Dear listeners, um, we went for a short break and before that I said that we are going to discuss the first segment which is for that worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community calls for de-escalation of Israel-Hamas war. And uh, he is known as the champion of peace who has travelled throughout the world, met various world leaders, went to many, many parliaments as well, where he gave, where he addressed the parliament and the world and gave solution about those crises which we see nowadays. And the solution he gave were from the teachings of this uh, Holy Quran. Uh, and the listeners, he is known as a champion of peace and um, he has warned the world many, many times as well about the, de- uh, about if we don't unite and if we don't recognize that one creator, God, then we will see very harsh times. And uh, these harsh times are increasing. And um, he 
this is what he has done before, said many many times before as well and i want to know you answer because he has given solution from the holy Quran about how to maintain world peace or how to gain world peace but i want to know from you what should we do what is what can we do to achieve world peace let me know your answer the number is 0208 or you can go on our social advice of some uk so let's come to our first segment um, which is, as I said, that His Holiness calls for a de-escalation of Israel-Hamas war. Uh, but before you're going to do that, let's go to our two friends, Joe Biden and Benjamin Netanyahu. I mean, those two, you have seen them quite often together nowadays, especially when the war started. Um, rumors say that they had a dispute with each other and... The US, US, uh, U.S. President Joe Biden is quite frustrated about the behavior of Benjamin Netanyahu. And with behavior, I mean that uh, the ongoing uh, military campaigns which he's doing in Gaza, especially now in uh, Rafa. And uh, the said that closed doors, they, there was dispute and a few words have been used. And now he was hoping um joe biden we have seen him eating ice cream where he said that he's hoping for a ceasefire especially that it would start monday but monday has been passed and we haven't seen any ceasefire now um it is said that um especially um experts claim that us could be doing a lot more than closed door criticism to ensure an end to this bloodshed simply by following its own laws so this is the role of the us i mean it's a world it's a big country it's one of the world leaders um of course they can go and they can end this i believe that um but yet we haven't seen that i mean what is i mean if we see um, the role of the U.S. in the Gaza, there's uh, ex-president Obama, who also said it is wrong uh, what is happening in Gaza. And then we see uh, U.S. President Biden, who also said that we should go for a ceasefire. But now, we see out from the Biden administration that they are still allowing weapons to be delivered to Israel. I mean, despite warnings about suspected war crimes and the potential of a genocide in Palestinian territory, they're still sending weapons to Israel. Uh, and I mean, it is also um, support. Uh, it has also supported legislation that would offer more than 15 billion in extra U.S. security aid to the country. Um, uh, and uh, I mean. Listen, if you if you look between the relation now uh, of America and Israel, we see that U.S. always have backed Israel and has always provided them with money, has always provided them with um, weapons, and um, the United States has already agreed to deliver Iron Dome air defense missiles. So um, that this is very, I mean, I mean, it's very tricky, isn't it? One way you say that you want to you want to end the war. On the other hand, you're just delivering more weapons, more money, so they can go on with the war. So um, we don't see any um, improvement into that. We just see that there's huge talking, but we see that um, it is confusing, isn't it? Um, 
I mean, as I said, you are the, it, they are very close these countries, no doubt in that. America has could still, I mean, has still played a big role uh, by the creation of Israel as well after the Second World War, but it still can play a big role as well to end the crisis we see in Gaza. And this is what the Holy Quran has said as well. In chapter 49, verse 10, um, God says, And if two parties of believers fight each other, make peace between them. Then if after that one of them transgresses against the other, fight a party that transgresses until it returns to the command of Allah. Then if it returns, make peace between them with equity and act justly, really Allah loves the just. Now the second successor of the Prophet Messiah, as Mr. Bashirdi Mahmoud Ahmad, may I be pleased with him, said that this verse lays down the following principle for the maintenance of international peace. As soon as there are indications of disagreement between two nations, the other nations, instead of taking sides with one or other, should at once serve a notice upon them calling upon them to submit their differences for settlement to a League of Nations or United Nations organization, as the case may be. If they agree, the dispute will be settled, but if one of them refuses to submit to the League or having submitted refuses to accept the award of the League and prepares to make war, the other nations should all fight against it. It is evident that one nation however strong, cannot withstand the united might of all other nations and is bound to make a speedy submission. In that event, terms of peace should be settled between the two original parties to the dispute. The other nations should act merely as mediators and not as parties to the dispute and should not put forward new claims arising of the conflict with the, uh, with the refractory nation. For that would lay a foundation of fresh disputes and quarrels. The terms of peace should be just and equitable with reference to the merits of disputes. They should be confined to the original dispute between the parties and should not be allowed to travel beyond it. It is such a league organization which can safely be entrusted with the maintenance of international peace. Not a league organization whose very existence is dependent upon the goodwill of others. And here you see... I mean, God has said that if two parties fight against each other, make peace, and if one of them transgresses against the other, then fight a party that transgresses until it returns to the command of Allah. And the second caliph, he has said that third party should be there, shouldn't take any sides, first of all, and should make sure that the dispute comes to an end. If the dispute comes to an end because one of the other party is transgressing or still want to go for war, then of course war should be made with them until they stop, until they um, uh, want to reconcile with the other party. I mean, this is a, such a good, beautiful uh, law and such a beautiful guidance from God we have received. And this is what we see is not happening at all in this world. We, um, we see that nations, big nations, whatever they do, they do it for their own interests but not for the wider world, for the interests of the wider world. This is what we see by America as well. As I said, they talk about ceasefire, but still are sending billions of money to and weapons to Israel for their own benefit as well. And this is wrong, and this should happen. And because of that, we see many, many more crises. Dear listeners, <clears throat> I said before, we have prepared 
a pre-recording uh, where we had one with Dr. Danny Lewin for this segment, who spent his early years as the son of a diplomat in the Middle East, Africa, and Europe. And following his law studies and a PhD on conflicts between religious and circular legal systems, and an initial academic career, has he has spent the last 25 years in war zones. Under his leadership, the Liechtenstein Foundation of, for State Governance has been identifying promising young candidates in failed states worldwide and preparing them for future leadership through political inclusion, financial literacy, literacy and constitutional initi initiatives. He has described many of his experiences in his recent book, Proof of Life, 20 Days on, on the Hunt for Missing Persons in the Middle East and Nothing But the Circus, Misadventures Among the Powerful. I've started reading his book, Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for Missing Persons in the Middle East. It's very interesting uh, because there he described basically in detail uh, how it is, how difficult it is to live in war zones. The listeners, uh, as I we have a pre-recording with him. Uh, so do me a favor, do you enjoy the pre-recording and after that we will carry on with the segment. What would you say are the main challenges dealing peace negotiations in this war of Israel and Palestine? Well, I think the, 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 my first answer to your question is that I don't think anyone is really conducting peace negotiations. The uh, Israeli side is stating its desire to uh, get rid of Hamas and to return the hostages, that's not a peace negotiation. And Hamas uh, is trying to get Palestinians released from Israeli jails and get the Israeli uh, troops out of Gaza. That's not a peace negotiation either. So at the very most, the most ambitious, honest assessment would be this is a ceasefire negotiation and a hostage release negotiation. And of course, in that answer lies the whole problem, which is, absent actual peace negotiations that deal with uh, two side-by-side -side states and Palestinian statehood, uh, there is really uh, no end to these spirals of violence, meaning what we're witnessing right now, we will witness uh, again periodically just in, with more violence and more deaths on all sides. So unfortunately, the first part of my answer to it is that uh, we're not really conducting peace negotiations. No one really is. It's, these are very specific negotiations for ceasefires and for hostage releases. Uh, the second point is, uh, on a larger scale, what is delaying peace negotiations is a lack of willingness of the parties on the ground to actually enter into meaningful peace negotiations. That has historical reasons over many decades and many generations, which we can get into. But, uh, but I believe that's my initial answer to your question, which is that, that no one is really approaching it as with a desire to actual, to actual peace. Mm -hmm. uh, very valid point you raised that there's a lack of willingness. And why do you believe that there's a lack of willingness? And why aren't the world leaders doing uh, much efforts to end this war or also, why, are they, why aren't they putting much effort uh, to achieve peace or justice? Well, the number of answers to your question. I think if you look at the state of the world, not just today, but in the history of humanity, uh, people have always asked why world leaders don't do more to end the suffering and end the bloodshed. And 
the cynical, but possibly the correct answer, in my, in my opinion at least, is that world leaders actually uh, have no direct interest in ending this suffering, either because they lack the empathy and the humanity to do that, or because in many cases their power depends on the continued suffering. You have currently war zones all over the world, millions of people, just to mm -hmm. take an example from another part of the world, millions of people have died in the Congo in the last 15, 20 years since the reign of Mobutu, millions of people have died and somehow the world has accepted that, not only the world outside of Africa, but even African states surrounding the Congo that have uh, maintained this war and kept it alive. So the same, you look at the Middle East, I think the illusion that we have in the Middle East and those of us from the Middle East, such as myself, is that somehow the world is really devastated by this war and that world leaders uh, don't go to sleep at night without thinking of ways to end it, when in fact the reality is different, that uh, the Middle East is fading in importance to the world, at least the Middle East and in, in Israel and Palestine, uh, that uh, resources have shifted elsewhere. Uh, and that uh, if you look at it from the U.S. perspective, there are far more financial and intellectual and military resources spent on dealing with a confrontation with China, let's say, in the South China Sea over an escalation over a place like Taiwan, than they really worry about the Middle East. So to some extent, when we talk about it, um, we have this illusion that the rest of the world and world leaders are obsessed with solving the Middle East. What they really want is the Middle East conflict not to metastasize into something so large that it spills over and affects their countries. And that, to me, also is the approach we should take in trying to get world leaders and outside countries to much more forcefully work towards a solution. Because I personally do not believe, and I think the current devastation mm -hmm. and carnage in Gaza shows that, I don't believe that uh, Israelis and Palestinians have the willingness, the desire, and the ability from within, meaning from their own populations, to want peace and to give concessions for peace enough so to, work that, to make that happen. I think without the outside pressure of the West mm -hmm. and the United States on Israel and on Arab countries and others, uh, including China and Russia, on the Palestinian side, I don't think uh, peace is something that we will see in our lifetime. Absolutely. But um, uh, why do you, what do you believe that, for example, you said that there's a lack of willingness. So do you believe that um, the other countries, for example, USA, America, they are getting benefit from this war? Because they are not, you know, um, very happy to, to stop this war at it seems apparently well we are you know i think we are so used to looking at israel and palestine and israeli palestinian problem as you know the most interesting and intractable conflict of the world but even if you look at the middle east in a larger context if mm. you just look at it just without any emotion just pragmatically realistically and honestly for the united states it is far more important to secure a peaceful uh, relationship and a de-escalation of hostilities with a country such as Iran than it is to deal with the, with the Israeli-Palestinian issue. Now, there, in many respects, those issues are intertwined, 
But I believe a rational approach is to figure out a way to de-escalate the tensions with Iran, and that's a complicated issue and something for another day, a discussion for another day, than to simply f- focus on a two-state solution. Now, the things go hand in hand. I personally believe, and I've spoken about this frequently now, that even in the new generation of military and uh, religious and, and civilian leaders in Iran, there is starting to be an understanding that they could cautiously support some form of a two-state solution along the lines that I've also been discussing in the idea of a confederation, uh, because ultimately there is a danger that the conflict in the Middle East could spill over and destabilize regimes all over the Middle East and the Gulf, including Iran. So that is what I am talking about here. And if that does happen, it destabilizes a region that for the West, meaning for Europe and the United States, is still of geopolitical and resource importance, meaning not just fossil fuels, but also trade routes. If you look at the Red Sea, for example. So Mm -hmm. this is still a critical area for the West. So if you take, if you, obviously we have all discussed fossil fuels and the importance of fossil fuels for the foreseeable future, despite a desire to move to green energy. Uh, but the same is true for shipping routes. And we saw the disruption that happened in the Red Sea coming out of Yemen and the Houthi population. So for the, this is for a, an easy area, for example, for the US and China to get together and say we have a common interest in de-escalating it. And you cannot put out those fires if you don't solve the Israeli-Palestinian issue. You're not going to uh, put out the fires in Yemen, for example, without that. You're not going to put out the fires in Lebanon without dealing with the Israeli-Palestinian issue. And you're not going to end the hugely destabilizing uh, escalation with Iran and the West over nuclear and other issues. You're not going to do that without addressing Israeli-Palestinian issue either. So for me, those conflicts are intertwined, but even just the way I laid it out in just a few words shows mm-hmm. that a rational approach of outside, uh, outside powers, meaning in the Middle East, whether it's the Arab countries, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Egypt, Turkey, Iran, uh, those countries who have, are now going to have an increasing interest in de-escalating, the same is true for European countries and the United States, who will have an increasing interest on pressuring Israel to make concessions for, for a form of confederation, meaning a, a two-state solution with uh, plus, if you want to call it that. I've, I've talked about this and written about this frequently mm-hmm. now. Uh, and I think that you're witnessing in the United States a shifting uh, also politically, where you're seeing it in the challenges that President Biden is facing from progressive side, very, very young voters who are no longer willing to just support the Democratic Party without any questions asked, unless it starts to take more forceful positions in pressuring Israel towards this kind of a solution. Dear listeners, um, you just listened to an interview with Dr. Lewin. Um, and interesting, he, what he thought is that... Um, I mean, in the beginning when he said that um, they don't have any wish or they don't have any luck with that or to de-escalate uh, for the escalation of that uh, war with the I mean um, it reminds me uh, on the verse of the Holy Quran uh, where Allah says and help one another in righteousness and piety 
but help not one another in sin and transgression and fear Allah surely Allah is severe in punishment chapter 5 verse 3 uh, and uh, the, the, the Holy Prophet peace upon him also has said once that the best charity is to reconcile between people um, we, we have uh, seen uh, America and Israel we have seen the relationship they have I said before that there's a he- deep historical and economic links with Israel that the United States has the United States which has backed the establishment of Jewish states um, since the Second World War uh, is Israel's largest commercial partner with an annual bilateral commerce of almost 50 billion products and services um so we see that they have uh, a huge relation with each other as well but the listeners again it comes to the point that um if you are strong and if you are like a big brother to then then use that strong use this and take your responsibility very seriously and help uh, to develop the state but help it in a way that no one else is uh, suffering uh, islam has always said and um, uh, I've, I've repeated that many, many times. All Islam has said that to kill an innocent people is wrong, and it is against the teachings of Islam and the teachings of the Holy Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him. Uh, and we see that that um, uh, we see this has been um, this is what we have seen. Uh, that innocent people have been killed. Uh, a war should be fought between armies, and that's it. Um, I remember that um, uh, the so- uh, uh, holiness uh, helper. He even himself he has now uh, talked about this many many times. He has condemned the killing of innocent civilians on both sides in the war between uh, Hamas and Israel. And he has expressed his fear that the situation would continue to spiral out of control. Um, sp- now, speaking during his Friday sermons at the uh, Mubarak Mosque uh, in Tilford, uh, uh, he said that he urged I mean, the Muslim world to set aside the, their differences in order to raise a voice for those innocent Palestinians who have no link to terrorism and, or extremism and said that major powers should prioritize de-escalation and finding a just solution in the conflict. And also speaking of the role of the United Nations in establishing justice, his only recounted how the League of Nations failed as a result of failing to implement justice, which led to the uh, world, to Second World War in which tens of millions of people were killed. Now His Holiness said the United Nations too is failing to establish justice and is heading in the same direction, unfortunately. Uh, and the uh, listeners... Um, his Holiness always has pointed out uh, that justice should be prevail. Um, and this is one important thing um, we need to establish. Uh, dear listeners, we have now Imam Tamim Abu Dhaka from Jordan, who is named the Muslim scholar, theologian, imam, author, lecturer, poet, and regular panelist and debater on M- the MTA, which is the um, television of the Ahmadi Muslim community. Um, Imam Tamim Abu Dhaka, good morning and welcome to the Breakfast Show. 
Um, I think we have uh, one problem, uh, a technical problem. I'm sure the technical team is looking after that problem. Uh, we will, and meanwhile, we will carry on. Um, we carry on uh, about where we just stopped. Uh, coming back to the world we had of the Ahmadi Muslim community, he's known as Muslim Ahmed. Reminded the Muslim governments on the responsibilities and said, in these circumstances, the Muslims should at least realize their responsibility and should pay heed. They must set aside their differences um, and must establish their uh, uh, unity in order to better the relationship with the people of the book. If Allah has given the commandment to the Muslims to call them towards a word equal between us and you by uniting over the unity of God, then Muslims who have the same creed should unite between themselves even more so by setting aside their differences. They should ponder over this and should establish their unity. This is the only way of removing injustice from the world and of fulfilling the obligation of justice and of establishment the rights of the oppressed. In order to do so, the Muslims must raise a strong voice in unison while coming together for those that are downtrodden across the world. His Holiness further stated, if the Muslims unite and are one, they will have a strong and impactful voice. Otherwise, the Muslim governments would be responsible for the death of innocent Muslims. Uh, always keep the saying of the Holy Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him in mind and this should be borne in mind by the major powers as well that we must help both the oppressor and the oppressed we must understand the importance of this injunction I've been told that uh, Imam Tamir Badaka is back um, Assalamu alaikum may uh, the peace of and blessing of Allah be with you Imam Tamir Badaka can you hear me now? Yes, I can hear you. We had some problems. I'm sorry for that. But coming back to the first question, if you can give from this from an Islamic perspective, why is it important that other nations try to end this war? Okay, first of all, actually, we should uh, uh, understand the very important facts uh, according to the uh, to the whole situation without having understanding these facts it will be very uh, difficult for people to understand what's going on and how also this is going to be resolved. This is a big dilemma for Israel itself. Israel is not a normal state, cannot live as a normal state, cannot abide by the international law due to, the, to its nature and structure. The Israeli politicians, they know that exactly, and they know exactly that as soon as Israel is ready to abide by international law or be a normal state, that will be the day of its decomposing. Uh, and uh, that, uh, because of that, uh, 
they, they are now in a very big trouble and they think uh, they cannot uh, resolve it. And because of that, uh, they have done very crazy acts recently in Gaza and in West Bank because they think uh, if we don't do that, that will be, uh, we are just uh, going uh, eventually uh, to the end of uh, the state. Why for Palestinians, actually? For Palestinians, uh, the history and the, uh, the, uh, the, the future is for the Palestinians. For Palestinians, if the international law is implemented, the, immediately the re-emerge of Palestine will happen, will occur. And immediately, at least, the Palestinians will regain a good part of their basic rights. Immediately just by implementing the international law. So because of that, maybe the people, they don't understand why Israel is always an outlaw country, why Israel didn't implement any single solution, any single decision of the international community. Uh, since uh, 19, uh, uh, since 1947, uh, uh, and uh, uh, after that, in 1967, when Israel, re, uh, when Israel occupied the rest of Palestine and occupied also a good a part of uh, Egypt, which was Sinai, and the Golan Heights, and after the decision, which was 242 by the Security Council of the United Nations, it was very clear that Israel must, must withdraw from these lands. The Israelis denied that, and the Americans kept. The Americans uh, kept and the Western kept to support, uh, supporting Israel against all that. Uh, so for Israel, really it is a very big dilemma because they cannot. Can you hear me? Sorry? I can hear you, yes. Yes, yes. So for Israel, Israel cannot accept one state solution and cannot accept two state solutions. This is the, this is a problem for Israel. One set solution by demo, by democracy itself, democracy only. You know, the Palestinians immediately will be ruling Palestine, and the prime minister and the, the majority of uh, uh, the the government will be from Palestinians. So Israel doesn't want to be the country for all of its citizens. They want to implement the apartheid system. And they want just to capture the land, the Palestinian land, and try to get rid of the Palestinians, either by apartheid system or through uh, trying to transfer them or even to implement a, a, a plain genocide against them. So what's going on in Gaza now, Israel just kill the Palestinians because of killing. They want just to kill Palestinians and to uh, terrorize them, to let them leave Palestine. And this is, by the way, they, they got the excuse of uh, of and Hamas and so on. While in West Bank, this policy uh, is implemented since the beginning of this year. And now, day by day, we are, uh, if you look at the news, you can see how the Israelis are having raids on the Palestinian towns and try to sorry we're going for a news break if if you can just continue after the news break if it's okay for you okay that's fine in the name of Allah, the most gracious ever merciful dear listeners um, first of all apologies we had to go f- we had to cut 
the interview with Tamim Abudaka um, for the news break, but we will carry on where he stopped. Uh, Tamim Abudaka still on hold, and he talked about the, the apartheid system in Israel and how the Palestinians are suffering because of that. Um, Tamim Abudaka, assalamu alaikum, may the peace and blessing of Allah be with you. And uh, again, welcome back. And if you just carry on where you oh. just stopped. Uh, thank you, thank you very much. Uh, by the way, uh, the, uh, the voice is uh, very poor. I'm, I'm sorry for that. I don't know what's happening. Uh, so if they can call me another number, I have given them another number. But I will keep. I, I will continue. Okay. Uh, anyhow, uh, anyhow, as I have told uh, you, actually, uh, the the problem is regarding the Israeli structure. Okay. Um. Um. Sorry, dear listeners. I really apologize. We have some um, technical issue right now. Um, we couldn't hear Tamim Budaka um, clearly with the number we just called. We got a new another number. I'm calling just another number. I'm sure he will be on hold just in a few seconds. Um, sorry for that as well. Um, we. I just want to just summarize what we just discussed. We discussed about the uh, Israel war. We discussed about the uh, relationship of America and Israel. And we are sure that America, if America would try sincerely could end the war in the Middle East and could end the whole um, conflict in the Middle East which is going on for more than 70 years. We also discussed how His Holiness has spoken out to that as well and has warned the world as if we don't end this conflict we will go to another very major conflict and he reminded us that as the League of Nations did not act with justice. Uh, this led to the Second World War and that the United Nations is unfortunately going the same way as well, which could lead uh, as well to another world war. So this is what we have discussed previously. Um, while have, um, um, calling uh, Damir Mubadaka, um, I want you to just carry on um, with the saying uh, of uh, um, His Holiness. Uh, he also dressed now talking about the U.S. He also went once to the U.S. and he addressed at the Capitol Hill. Um, he said um, that another requirement uh, for peace between nations based on justice is given in chapter 15, verse 89 of the Holy Quran, where it states that no party should ever look unwisely at the resources and wealth of others. Similarly, no country should seek to unjustly appropriate or take even the resources of another country on the false pretext of trying to assist or support them. Thus, on the basis of providing technical expertise, governments should not take advantage of other nations by making unjust trade deeds or contracts. Similarly, on the basis of providing expertise or assistance, governments should not try to take control of the natural resources or assets of developing nations. Um... So he also further stated that just for the requirements of justice to be fulfilled, it is essential that the countries that are negotiating a settlement should themselves not seek to fulfill their own personal interests, nor to try to derive benefit unduly from the from uh, other country. Um, I mean, this is what what we see um, uh, nowadays a lot that. While negotiating, uh, other countries while they're negotiating, they always look for their own personal interest. We also have seen wars happened previously in the last uh, 
20, 30 years, or I mean, in the last 100 years, maybe, or more, longer than that, uh, only to get the resources of the, on the wealth of the other countries. Uh, and this is what the Quran has told us not to do so. What This is what His Holiness, has reminded us not to do so. It is wrong, uh, and um, it is against the teachings of Islam. Um, and uh, again, he uh, one thing um, when the war, the, when Israel Hamas war started, I remember on the twenty seventh of October, right in the beginning of the war, um, he His Holiness said that for as long uh, for as long as world leaders do not courageously or bravely strive for ceasefire, they are responsible for taking the world towards destruction. And uh, um, even the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, Dili said such a beautiful thing of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said, help your brother, whether he is an oppressor or he is an oppressed one. And people asked, O Messenger, peace be, and blessing be upon him, we understand helping a person if he is oppressed. But how should we help him if he is an oppressor? And the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said, by preventing him from oppressing others. This is such a beautiful thing. In this saying, we realize that the importance that when we want to um, negotiate, we can't take sides. We need to go and we need to help both parties as well. Um, And... uh, I have not in any person. Yeah, I not can. I can't even imagine the war. Uh, I, I I can't even imagine the pain people are going through. That um, it is a huge injustice we see in this world, and because of this huge injustice, we see uh, the conflicts nowadays. And uh, to end the conflicts, we need to end injustice as well. Um, I'm very um, uh, sorry. Uh, to say that we couldn't get uh, Mom to meet with Daka back on hold. Um, otherwise, uh, I had so many questions uh, for him in relates uh, regarding uh, of the, from the Islamic perspective as well. I apologize that as well to him and to you as well, dear listeners. Um, we will go now for a short break, and after the short break, we will start with the second segment about Rare Disease Day. Uh, so do me a favor, stay tuned with the voice of some radio. Verily, I tell you truly, that whosoever evades even the least of the 700 commandments embodied in the Holy Quran slams the door of salvation upon himself. The real and perfect paths of salvation have been opened by the Holy Quran. All others were only its shadows. Therefore, you should study this Holy Scripture with the utmost attention and deepest thought, and you should love it as you have never loved anything else. For indeed, as God has conveyed to me, Al-Khayru Kulluhu Fil Qur'an All good lies in the Qur'an. All kinds of good are to be found in it. And this is the truth. Talabul ilmi faridatun ala kulli muslimu wa muslima Acquisition of knowledge is obligatory upon every Muslim man and woman. Use your senses to find God. God must be found. Use your ears to hear his sound. Look up, look down, the sky, the ground. Look left, look right, look all around. God is with us wherever we look. He gave us the answers in the perfect book. 
so recite in the name of thy Lord who created. For your obedience he has patiently waited. See, God is with you everywhere. The bed, the stairs, the floor, the chair. Don't be disobedient. Please take care. He hears and sees all. Don't forget he's there. So next time you think about committing sin, just remember you're letting the devil in. This life is not just about worldly pleasure. The hereafter is where you'll find real treasure. So use your senses and use your sense. Ignorance is not a valid defence. Writings of the Promised Messiah, alayhi salam. It should be remembered that God Almighty, by demanding faith in the unseen, does not wish to deprive the believers of certainty of understanding the divine. Indeed, faith is a ladder for arriving at the certainty of understanding, without which it is vain to seek true understanding. Those who climb this ladder surely experience for themselves the pure and undefiled spiritual verities when a sincere believer accepts divine commands and directions for the only reason that God Almighty has bestowed upon him through a righteous bearer, he becomes deserving of the bounty of understanding. That is why God Almighty has established a law for his servants, that they should first acknowledge him by believing in the unseen, so that all the problems they face may be resolved through the bounty of true understanding. But it is a pity that a hasty one does not adopt these ways. A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitanir Rajeem Bismillah Rahman Rahim. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful, dear listeners, welcome back on the Breakfast Show. You just listening to the Words of Islam Radio, broadcasting from the largest mosque in Western Europe, the Battle for Two Mosque. Dear listeners, um, we're coming to a very special day. It is the 29th of February. Uh, and um, th- that day comes after every four years we see this day. And uh, th- this day is very special. And on the other hand, the last day of February is also in special in this, say that, in this sense that we then celebrate uh, the Rare Disease Day. Or let's say that the world observes the Rare Disease Days. Um, an occasion which is dedicated to amplifying uh, awareness and understanding um, of the challenges faced by the estimate 400 million people globally affected by ground 10,000 rare diseases. So this is this day in the course, the pressing need for access to their diagnosis, treatment and social opportunities and uh, spotlighting the journey many patients and the family endure. And for that, dear listeners, we have two guests, sorry, three guests, my fault. Uh, we will have Dr. Mohammed Iqbal, who will be live with us. And after that, we will have Professor Simon Heels. Uh, and we will have Ms. Dania Nasser, who will tell us her journey when she suffered from a rare disease as well. Um, and how... God, how his par- her parents, and how his her belief helped her to go through that difficult time. Um, but before we go to our first um, guest, um, as I said, um, it is uh, the rare disease that comes always in the last day of February. Um, 
I just want to give some more highlights on this day. Uh, this day is a global movement, and it is basically dedicated to achieving parity in social opportunities, healthcare, and of course, access to diagnose, diagnosis and treatments for those living with rare diseases. Now, since 2008, Rare Illness Day has played an important role in establishing a worldwide rare illness community that is multi-disease global and diverse but unified in purpose. And Rare Disease Day, the rarest day of the year, is marked every year on February 28th or 29th in leap years. So uh, a rare disease day is rare when it only affects less than 1 in 2,000 people where 70% of these rare diseases start in childhood. So far, over 6,000 rare diseases are distinguished by a wide range of abnormalities and symptoms that differ not only from one another but also from patient to patient suffering from the same condition. Um, where 27 of rare diseases are genetic and one of five cancers is rare, relatively common symptoms might conceal underlying uncommon, usually life-threatening elements in the disease as a significant impact of the patient's quality of life. There are sometimes no effective remedies that add to the anguish and suffering experienced by patients and relatives. And Rare Disease Day provides a chance to campaign for rare diseases as a human rights issue at the local, national, international levels as we seek to create a more executive society. <coughs> Sorry for that. Rare Disease Day is an excellent illustration of how of how progress is being achieved with activities taking place all around the world each year. And Rare Disease Day has been observed early since 2008 when activities were hosted in only 18 countries with over 100 nations expected to participate. And because we always discuss this from the Islamic perspective as well, the Holy Prophet peace be upon him, he said that there is no disease that Allah has created except that he also has created its treatment. He also said to physicians once, you are only a soother of to your patient. Its physician is he who has created him, which means Allah. And Holy Quran says, Wali in the creation of the heavens and of the earth and the alternation of the night and of the day are there signs for men of understanding? They who, standing, sitting or reclining, bear Allah in mind and reflect on the creation of the heavens and of the earth, saying, O our Lord, thou hast not created this in vain. And of course, dear listeners, as I mentioned before, God has provided a cure for every illness. And of course, many herbs and insects contain such cures like we have uh, the venom of a snake. One such example is also that of a honeybee and uh, how it uh, described in the Holy Quran uh, that the honeybee uh, it provides honey which has, you know, it's known as sh sh uh, uh, the cure for man, that they are the cures for man. This is how it is described in the Holy Quran. <coughs> Sorry for that, dear listeners. Um, so, um, the Holy Quran and God, and God has spoken about this as well. And uh, one thing we see, which you see also in the previous saying of the Holy Prophet, which I've mentioned this before, that is basically Allah, God, 
who can give us fully health, uh, health, uh, fully healthy life, and it is only Him who can safeguard us from every diseases, uh, which uh, support us uh, as well, and which help us to go through difficult times as well. So it mean it is also when we go through these diseases and difficult times, it is also not that we bring or that we increase our relations with God as well. Um, Dear listeners, um, we will discuss this now from the Islamic perspective a bit more. Uh, we have Dr. Muhammad Iqbal with us, who is a retired farmer, healthcare professional, and producer and host of Living History on Voice Islam Radio. Dr. Muhammad Iqbal, Assalamu alaikum. May the peace and blessings of Allah be with you. Good morning and welcome to the Breakfast Show. Wa alaikum salam and thank you for having me. It is good to have you because, as I said, we, I want to discuss this from the Islamic perspective as well. Sure. Um, it is one thing that Allah Taala, so Allah has a cure for all the diseases which we which we know. Yet sometimes I read that uh, someone has been uh, just got a, a rare disease, and uh, yet there is no um, medication, no solution for that disease. How can we understand now the saying of Allah? And uh, if we come to this, this day and age where we see more and more rare diseases. Well, uh, as Muslims, we know that uh, the Holy Prophet told us that uh, for uh, every ailment, Allah Ta'ala has created a, a cure for it in this world as well. So the question is, uh, you know, how to find it and where to find that uh, cure. As far as uh, rare diseases go, clearly, as uh, science and technology has improved, we have been able to identify a lot more of the rarer diseases and um, you know in, in in the western and developed world of course we're, we're finding many of these rare diseases whereas in ancient times you largely died younger and you died from infectious diseases or you know common diseases uh, that were uh, uh, prevalent so um there's uh, you know the, the, there's a lot more uh, understanding now of these rare diseases and i was fortunate enough to work for some of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in like Novartis, sastrozanica etc which uh, made major inroads into looking into rare diseases as well as the common diseases and uh, um also you know um because uh, you said that now we have uh, developed uh, we, uh, uh, we also have m more ways to find more cures for the rare diseases uh, is it true that we see an increase of rare diseases in this day and age I'm not sure if there is uh, necessarily an increase in rare diseases uh, that's an open book at the moment but mm. certainly we are finding a lot more of those and I would say a lot of that is based on uh, you know scientific improvements and uh, technological uh, breakthroughs uh, uh, as well um, there is a possibility that because of the changes in our environment new and new diseases may well be developing you know, with the use of uh, uh, hydrocarbons, plastics, etc., and so uh, our inability to consume natural products, etc., that that will be causing uh, certain things. But um, so rare, rare diseases can be uh, of a genetic order uh, that are prevalent, you know, among certain groups, certain ethnicities, certain families, etc. 
but also um you know infectious diseases as well because uh, as you know these uh, bugs in uh, both in terms of viruses and uh, bacteria uh, are able to have resistance and uh, you know different types can develop uh, and um, you you can get some sort of rare infectious diseases in that area as well but normally when pharmaceutical companies talk of rare diseases and medical it's more really in terms of uh, genetic um, identification and because of our ability to identify uh, you know dna sequences in human beings and how they that impacts on diseases etc uh, we know uh, a lot more uh, i had the good fortune uh, of uh, um working as say with Novartis which was probably one of the pioneers in developing a chronic myeloid mm-hmm. leukemia called CML it's a, it's a blood uh, cancer mm-hmm. which in the old days you know used to have terrible consequences you within 5 years majority of the people died well they developed one of the first new drugs that could specifically target certain areas uh, certain you know, areas of genes etc and now we've got people surviving into 10, 15, 20 years, almost turning it into a, a long-term manageable disease. So that, that's how, firstly, it's about identifying the disease, knowing exactly what is causing that disease, and then having the treatments. And that's the beauty of the current medical research uh, and you know, pharmaceutical industry working hand-in-hand with leading researchers. Uh, so, I mean, there are certain yes, diseases, um, that are increasing because of our environmental mm. changes. But I think it's more that we are identifying more exactly what those diseases are and what impact they have on our lives. And uh, some of them, you know, within a few years you die and now you've got therapies mm. that uh, extend that life. That's true, actually. That I mean, with the, as you just mentioned for, uh, already, that people before that used to die in the age of 25, now we reached the age of 80 um, which is I think also a miracle as well that God has made it possible for us to live longer and you know talking about miracles um, have you ever like uh, uh, working as former health have you ever heard about any miracles happened with any doctor that he saw that this patient is lost but suddenly it he or she wasn't lost and is now healthy again is there any miracles you can tell the people we, uh, in, uh, I mean, I live in Bradford, West Yorkshire, in the UK, and we had a gentleman who had a, a cancer, and the doctors had told the family, you know, that's it, you better all come uh, and say your goodbyes, and believe it or not, you know, it was hard to explain, mm-hmm. but uh, he survived for about 20 or more years. Um, so certain miracles sort of thing, you know, can happen. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we've seen uh, um, examples of people making recovery, both through uh, drug intervention, but also by power of prayers and belief. And, uh, you know, our uh, beloved Khalifa, leader of our community, a lot of people write to him as well, and he mm-hmm. does prayers mm-hmm. as well. So uh, doctors themselves are quite surprised at some of the developments. Um, and then, of course, there is, uh, you know, homeopathic uh, medications as well, which play a uh, part. So prayers, alternative therapies and modern therapies, they all help. And, uh, and ultimately, it's Allah's will, mm. uh, what uh, Allah chooses to do for his particular servant, I think. I mean, you're talking about prayers as well, that His Holiness, 
was asked to pray for certain people and to his prayers that pe- person he became healthy again i mean um the, this reminds me on a miracle happened in the time of the promised about abdul karim his uh, yeah. his story is very interesting and it is shown also as a miracle and the truthfulness of the promised isn't it Oh, absolutely. I mean, that is a great example. And I know Kizom Sirabe, Brahimullah, has mentioned this in his question-answer sessions. I think there's a Russian researcher who had written about the particular incident and showing really the importance and relevance of Hazrat Mizrahi Ghulam Ahmed. So, so this young man was the son of a very devout Ahmadi who lived long, long far away in Hyderabad, Deccan, in the south of India. And... Uh, you know, everybody had given up because it was a case of rabies. And in those days, of course, virtually everybody, you know, 100% people died. There was no cure, no nothing. Um, And uh, because he he was from a a devout family and uh, it made the journey to seek uh, prayers from the Promised Messiah, he did actually fervently, once he received this letter notification, start praying for that young uh, man who'd made the journey. And miraculously, he did uh, recover, and that was an absolute miracle because there was no known remission from rabies. Uh, it was a terrible, terrible disease, and even to this day, uh, extremely, extremely rare cases of remissions have occurred. And these are, in many ways, miraculous. But that was a specific mm-hmm. case where, uh, you know, Promised Messiah said, "Inshallah, I will pray for him," and he did recover. I mean, um, this is. Uh, I mean. One thing we, the enemy never will tell about the truthfulness of the Promised and especially those prophecies which came true. I mean, I mean, uh, uh, Doctor Muhammad Iqbal, if you don't mind, um, I just want to talk about prophecies about the Promised Islam as well, um, especially uh, connecting it with diseases. For example, in the Bible, yes, not even yeah. in the Bible, even in all all the other uh, holy scriptures, it is mentioned that for the last reformer, the plague will come. The outbreak of a plague will appear, and this happened in the time of the Prophet as well, especially in Punjab. Yeah, and uh, he wrote a book as well, the New uh, the uh, Noah's Ark, uh, where he explained everything that he saw in a dream: these angels planting these trees, etc. Uh, and uh, he uh, said that those who live in his four walls will be safeguarded. It means that those who follow his teachings truly will be safeguarded from the plague, and they don't have to take any vaccine, etc. Uh, I mean. Um, and this is what uh, it's sad to believe, isn't it? Um, um, that uh, well, it was another great example mm-hmm. um, <coughs> because, um, as you say, the, this particular incident has been uh, written about uh, as well. And well, listeners should know that when he was writing the book, he did say that uh, the government of the day was offering inoculations against the plague, etc., to try to protect the mm. population. And generally, it said, look, you know, um, you should trust uh, the government in what it's trying to do to protect the population. However, in his case, he wasn't going to take the inoculation. And that was because God Almighty had revealed to him and told him that he doesn't need to take it because it will be seen and shown as a sign of God's uh, uh, you know, majesty and a, and a miracle and the, the truthfulness of the Prophet Messiah, al-Islam. And he also said that those who, was, uh, uh, who were genuine, honest uh, uh, Ahmadis, devout Ahmadis, believing in everything that the Ba'ath had said, that they don't have to take the, and they will be protected as uh, under his uh, walls. 
uh, and the, broadly the community would be protected as well. And that turned out to be case because in his case and the, uh, around his four walls, nobody took it and they, they all uh, uh, survived and did okay. But that's because it was God's way of showing it as a sign of, uh, of how God operates. And it's Allah, God Almighty, who chooses to protect through his angels and their uh, inner activity. Um, and ultimately, uh, Allah knows uh, how our bodies and uh, their nature works, etc., and what other protective mechanisms. But, but that was a truly amazing case and the, one of the signs of the truthfulness of the Promised Messiah by the Al-Islam. I mean, these signs were not only mentioned, uh, the saying of the Holy Prophet, peace upon him, but also were mentioned in the Old Testament and in all the uh, Holy Scriptures as well, which I think for those listeners who have interest on um, studying that, should go into that and should at least read the book, the Noah's Ark. Um, Dr. Mohamed Iqbal, um, thank you again for joining. It's always lovely speaking to you and listening to you answers as well uh, My I, pleasure. I really enjoyed listening to you um, I wish you all the best for the future as well and uh, yes hopefully listen, so if you want to le- uh, listen to him more or if you want to learn more with from him you can do so as he is the host of Living History on the Voice of Sam Radio Dr. Mohamed Iqbal thank you for joining My Thank pleasure. You. thank you so the listeners, um, I think this is very interesting uh, to mention that um, we talk about rare diseases but we also say that it is in the end it is God who gives cure, gives a healthy life again. Uh, and it's also like uh, to see that Allah Ta'ala has, God has sent miracles as well. And not only for to show that He is alive, that He is there, but also to, sh- to show that the reformer He is sending, especially the Messiah, who we believe that He's the last reformer of this day and age, that for Him He has also sent these diseases as the truthfulness for Him as well. And uh, it is so so interesting that um, even though uh, vaccine were made uh, in the time of the plague by the British government, but still he he did not take it, uh, and he still was safeguarded. And if you see the numbers of death uh, of people who I mean people have died because of that, you can you realize that it was impossible to live without uh, vaccine. But as I said, it was a miracle of God that he safeguarded him and to show the world that he is a true reformer and a true messiah. Um, carry on, um, dear listeners. Um, we will go for a pre-recording interview, which we have with Prime Professor Simon Heels. Um, do me a favor. Do enjoy and do listen to that interview as well. And stay tuned with the Voice Some Radio. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful, dear listeners, um, I have with me Professor Simon Heald, who is a consultant clinical scientist and director of the NSH Neural Metabolic Laboratory based at the National Hospital, Queenscale, London. And he also has a PhD from Aston University in the area of inherited metabolic disorders. Professor Simon Heald, good morning and welcome to the breakfast show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Um, Professor, um, I've few questions. I have a lot of questions, to be honest, about <laughs> especially also about um, pandemics. Um, okay. But before we go to that, um, I just want to uh, know about your trust, its aim, and how it specifically contributes towards rare diseases. Right. Thank you first. Thank you, that, And also, thank you again for inviting me on to your program. 
So I work in a hospital called the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery, and that's part of University College London Hospitals Trust, Foundation Trust. And my area of interest, and the hospital facilitates this, the trust that enables me to do this, is in, in rare inherited um, metabolic diseases. So these are rare diseases. So what I mean by rare is probably around one in 5,000 people being affected, um, may even be rarer than that. And my laboratory has got a particular focus on neurological aspects, so the brain, the central nervous system. Mm. And so we're particularly interested in areas that affect the brain's ability to make neurotransmitters. You may have heard of things like dopamine. And also another area of interest that we have is in the areas of mitochondrial disease, which affects the body's cells and their ability to make um, energy. And so my trust has a very much a focus on highly specialized and specialized disorders. So I work very closely with clinicians and within the hospital and across the country and even across the world, send us samples for diagnosis because we have a whole range of tests that we can do to diagnose mm-hmm. patients with rare diseases. And we can also monitor patients in their response to treatment as well. So very well set up in this highly specialized center. We work very, very closely with the university, University College London, where I'm also and um, we work with Institutes of Neurology and the Institutes of Child Health to ensure we do research. So it's the hospital facilitating this um, diagnostic service, then working with the universities to enable us to do the research as well, all with a focus on rare inherited diseases. That's my area. But that's actually brilliant. So, if, for example, someone wants to contact you and wants, like, wants you to go and look into him and if everything is fine, where can he get your contact number or where can he go to, um, okay, with always when people are interested, obviously, but we're a laboratory, so we're receiving samples in mm. from doctors. So the journey in the UK is you go, you start with your GP, they make a referral to a hospital, and then you get higher up to see highly specialized doctors, uh, consultants, who will then, you know, when they've done the clinical investigation, will send samples to our laboratory. They suspect it's one of the diseases that we work on. So it's very much uh, a journey for the patient, and their samples follow their journey, and they come to our lab for um, diagnosis. I see. And um, Professor, now, um, as I said, I had a lot of questions. Um, we went to a pandemic, right? Uh, we find out that there's a disease called COVID. And I mean, um, I don't know if it's qualified as a rare disease, but I know there are many, many rare diseases. Uh, can you explain what qualifies as a disease which is rare and why is it important for us to pay attention to these conditions? Right. That, thank you for that question. So what I mean by rare, this is defined differently in perhaps different countries of the world. We tend to work on something around that affects perhaps one in 2,000 um, people, perhaps one in 2,000 to one in 5,000 individuals. But as I say, that can vary within definition. So, you know, it's not, it's got, by definition, it's a rare disease or sometimes called an orphan disease where not many people know about the disease. It's getting better, of course. We're raising awareness. And so you do need specialists and highly specialized diagnostic labs to work with the specialist doctors to understand diagnosis diseases and increasingly start to provide um, treatments. 
Now, these are rare diseases, so they're not like the diseases that we all hear about, like heart disease or diabetes mm. uh, or Parkinson's. But what's very important about rare diseases and is that actually when you study rare diseases, like I do and my colleagues do, that can have implications for other more common disorders. So we are just studying, say, for example, a very rare enzyme deficiency. We have known over the years and others across the world have found the same. That, for example, may have implications for our understanding of Parkinson's disease. So it's really, really valuable to study these diseases, albeit that they are rare, because that can have implications for better health for more people and for more common diseases as well. But ultimately, we want to improve the outcome for the patient who has and their families who have a rare disease. And uh, do you think there is a slight increase in diseases, especially in this day and age? So I didn't quite get that question. Is there a slight like uh, in, in rare diseases, do you think there's a slight increase of new diseases, in, especially in this day and age? I think what I would say is we're getting much, much better at identifying these diseases. So it might appear that we are getting more. What we are actually doing is finding out more. So because of our ability to test for genetic uh, mutations now, our better ability to diagnose, better training of clinicians, etc., we're able to identify a lot quicker. In my working lifetime, I've seen new diseases. I've been involved in the discovery of new diseases. As we build our knowledge base, we get better at identifying new diseases. So, yes, the number we are aware of is increasing. They've been there. But I suppose the great thing is we can now diagnose those diseases and start to think about better treatments. And uh, because now a lot of people are coming from different backgrounds, from different countries um, to the UK as well, uh, do you think that um, we will see those diseases which we normally see, let's say, in the South Asian place or in Africa, also in the UK now? There are geographical pockets of particular diseases. I like, um, certainly where, the way we work in the rare disease community, we're a global community, so we're aware of different diseases around the world. And of course, as people move around the world um, for jobs, etc., they come yeah. to new countries. But our awareness, because we all communicate so well around the world, especially the labs, the doctors, the researchers. So we are getting better and better at diagnosing those patients, be it that they've moved from one country to another. They're into our system of healthcare or whichever healthcare system they're in, whichever country they're in. You can start to be quicker at diagnosing those patients. Okay, so that's actually good to know. So um, can, can you just explain how advancements in research and labs have transformed our understanding of and treatment of inherited rare diseases? So, I mean, I feel very privileged to have worked in the area of rare inherited diseases, metabolic diseases for the last 35 years. And I've seen some enormous changes. And that's because of the active research um, groups that are around in the UK and, and around the world um, as well. Our ability to diagnose has become greater and greater. We have better equipment now, more sensitive equipment, so we can definitely diagnose these patients quicker. And there's been a genetic revolution. We can now um, look at genetic, genetic mutations. We can start to identify from a very small sample, like a dry blood spot, if a patient has a particular uh, alteration in their uh, DNA. And therefore, you can identify the patient much, much earlier. And then you can start to think about treatments much, much earlier as well. So genetic testing is becoming extremely um, effective at identifying patients. It'll get better. And they have to work with labs such as mine to confirm the diagnosis. And then, of course, you start to have the treatments because research leads to new treatments. And then what I've seen in my lifetime, not only is it better, we're better at diagnosing patients sooner, 
and so forth sooner it means a better outcome hopefully but now we're moving into the era of gene therapy where we're starting to correct um, much more now it's becoming um, practice to try and correct the genetic defect that's um, occurring as a result of mutation correcting that um, code that genetic code and therefore hopefully a much better outcome for the patient. So I've seen an enormous change. It's really going in the right direction around diagnosis and more and more better treatments um, as well. These are diseases that there were not many treatments for and the list mm. is getting better with regards. Still a lot more work to go. We haven't mm. got there yet, but it's definitely where we're, we're heading in the right direction. Mm. So what is the role of lab results in developing treatments for rare diseases? The, the role of the laboratory. So. Um, we are, obviously I have a bias because I spent my whole life working in uh, laboratory medicine, but we all know when we go to the doctor, uh, the doctor asks for a, a range of blood tests, for example, mm. and we know we have to have our blood taken and that's sent on to a laboratory. So we have laboratories all within the NHS that are able to run a whole range of different uh, diagnostic specialities. So chemistry tests, it might be energy tests. It might be genetic tests. All these sort of tests are um, available. And then my lab runs some very highly specialized tests that we're one of some of the tests we offer are, are unique to the, the country. And we are running, um, in my lab, biochemistry tests, looking for the levels of a particular chemical be it in the brain or in a muscle or in the blood. And if it's too high or too low, we can then begin to identify what might be going wrong in a particular mm -hmm chemical pathway in a patient's cells. So the labs provide a really important answer for a doctor who's asking a very important question. Does this patient have this disease? They may look like they've got this particular disease from a clinical point of view, but you need a definitive diagnosis from, for example, genetics and from biochemistry and the other disciplines to say, actually, doctor, you were correct. The evidence we have from the blood you sent or the other samples you sent to us supports your suggestion of this diagnosis. And then sometimes we have to say to the doctor, it may not be this disease, you may need to think about something else, and we need to think about different tests. So we're very much part of a partnership, working with all the different clinicians and health professionals to help them come up with a, a diagnosis. Interesting. That's actually interesting. Um, so um, about the tests, if you can give for a few examples, for example, that um, let's say that um, you have done the blood test and uh, there's no harm, but you need to ma make more tests. What kind of tests would you do then? Okay, thank you. That's a very, very good um, question because obviously, you know, you hope when the doctors um, thought about it that they send some tests off to the laboratories and the result comes back. But um, as with medicine and particularly in rare diseases, there's so many other diseases that could appear to the, uh, the clinicians as a certain disease. So the one thing we do very well is we have something called a multidisciplinary uh, team, an MDT. And for example, in my area, that works um, on a Friday uh, with our partners at Great Ormond Street Hospital. So we have scientists and doctors from Great Ormond Street. We have scientists and doctors, nursing professionals, um, all the healthcare professionals, also from the National Hospital, including my neurometabolic unit. And we sit down and we discuss patient results. Um, the doctors talk about the clinical um, presentation of the patient and the scientists and nursing staff. Others talk about other aspects. And if we haven't got a definitive diagnosis, we then discuss um, other tests that um, could uh, be done. So working as a group, working as a multidisciplinary team, we can optimize the best testing, suggest new testing, 
and hopefully uh, minimize the time to a diagnosis. So a negative result is very important because it opens up discussion to do further studies to hopefully eventually get a definitive diagnosis. Interesting. Professor, basically, as I said, I had so many questions to ask you, but unfortunately, um, time is very short. I wish you all the best, and hopefully one day we can have you again, and then we just can carry on with the conversation because I really enjoyed it. No, and, uh, that's I wish, fine. I wish you all the best for the future. Thank you for joining. Thank you very much for inviting me. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Dear listeners, you just listened to an interview with Dr. Simon Hills, and uh, now we have another pre-recorded uh, interview for you prepared. It's a story about uh, Ms. Dania, uh, who went to a rare disease as well, and how she, she went to that, and um, what difficulties she had to face as well. Uh, after the interview, uh, we we carry on with the second segment. So do enjoy the interview. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, the merciful, dear listeners, I have with me Miss Dania Nasser, uh, who this has experienced a rare heart condition known as myocarditis and fortunately she has now successfully recovered Alhamdulillah with the blessings of Allah so Ms. Dani Nasser uh, welcome to the breakfast show so Dani you have suffered from a rare heart condition right can you tell us a bit more about that and your medical care journey yeah so um, around two weeks after I received the booster vaccine, the third vaccine, COVID vaccine, um, I started getting these chest pains, um, which I wouldn't have had before. And I'm the sort of person that that doesn't complain about pain at all. And for me to put up with that for a few days until I finally couldn't take it anymore, it was a big thing for me to, you know, um, let it out but I was just sitting um, it was uh, during Ramadan time and we had just got done having a start and we prayed and everything so everything was fine and I went and sat down and suddenly um, I felt the pain come back but this time it was much worse uh, where the pain shot through my left arm so it was on the left side of my chest um, and it went through the left arm and after a few minutes you know I just felt like uh, you know the world is ending uh, it was it was mm. the worst thing um the most difficult thing i think and um since we were all sitting um i hear my mom just constantly calling out my name and i'm trying to answer her but so i hear it and i'm trying to like say yes but i can't um and and i'm just you know i'm just um next thing i know i keep um on and off sort of fainting you can say um and next thing i know you know the paramedics have arrived already at home um, and what happened during that period of time, I don't know, um, don't remember. Um, but they came and they did an ECG um, and they noticed some anomalies within that. And uh, the only thing they said is we need to get to the hospital as soon as possible. So we get there and by then um, the pain had worn off. So the doctors were like, oh, you know, like what was going on? Was it just this? And nobody thought much of it. They thought it's just chest pain and it's okay now. Regardless, they did um, they did an, uh, another ECG and it was fine at that point. However, um, the pain came back and um, just as I was getting ready to leave, the pain comes back. They do an ECG and they, you know, we can tell that they realize there's something going on. But they didn't really tell us. They didn't diagnose anything. 
um, they were like, okay, we need to admit you, but we can't say anything as such. Um, and then a couple of hours later, they've done blood tests, they've done some scans and everything. And the doctor comes back and he's like, he asks me, have you had COVID recently? So just a month prior to that, I did have, um, I had COVID. And uh, then he asked, have I received any COVID vaccines? So I told him I just received um, the booster vaccine. And uh, a little while later, so at this point, we're in full panic mode. Um, and I genuinely thought, you know, that's it. I'm, I'm not going to survive um, because it was that difficult and it was just, just so scary. Um, but they come back and uh, eventually one of them tells us that I've got myocarditis. And he says they think it's a result of the booster vaccine. Um, and because I had just recovered from COVID and then I got the vaccine, they said as a result of that, I had developed it. So myocarditis being the inflammation of the heart muscle. So um, they decided to admit me. And for the first night, um, I had my mom stay with me. And um, eventually, I started getting worse. So we thought I would get better with painkillers and stuff. But I, I had just got worse. So they shifted me into um, the critical care unit. And, um, uh, it, you know, my mom wasn't allowed to be with me or nobody was allowed to come with me. So I was on my own for a week, um, and I, ha I have no idea, you know, how that week went. I was just in pain, really. That's all I can say. And I was on, uh, I was getting painkillers. I was um, getting some injections and stuff. Um, but that was about it. And then after a week, they shifted me elsewhere, and um, they realized it wasn't getting any better. So they started me up on some other medications. They changed the dosage. Um, and then three weeks later, three weeks of staying in the hospital, I was allowed to go home. But just a day before I could go home, um, my left side, the entire left side, it had gotten numb. So I wasn't able to move. Um, I wasn't able to do anything on my own. So my right side was fine. It was perfectly fine. However, the left side, I couldn't move. So that was an added trouble um, to, to the uh, already difficult phase. So then I received physio. I was there for an additional few days. Um, I was getting physio, um, but they couldn't actually tell why that was the case because it's, I mean, it's different um, in every case. But with me, what happened was that it was the whole left side, um, which just gave up on me. So anyways, I came home and I did have a few visits back. But alhamdulillah, you know, um, after a couple of months, I had started recovering. But it was the fact was that the first time we went, if they had realized then, it would have been, um, you know, much easier. But the fact that they weren't telling us or anything, it was very difficult. And I feel like um, anybody who, who goes through that would, would be able to relate. But uh -huh. I think, yeah, that, that's what happened. And the medical care was just, you know, medications. And that's how I got better. Um, but, yeah, it's been, it's been two years now and going well so far alhamdulillah I mean just like listening what was very like when I was listening to it, I was like whoa I mean that pain you had to go through and I mean that experience uh, I mean no, uh, it's something you, you just wish no one and uh, it's good that you are happy now um, but coming back to I mean staying still with you um, um uh, the disease or illness you had, this myocarditis. Uh, are there 
do you feel any side effects? And I mean, you said you had problems with the left side as well. Did, I mean, how did this everything affect your daily routine? It it did um, heavily. I um, just a month after I had left the hospital, I had my A level exams. Um, wow. And it was heavily affected, yes. So I was thinking of, you know, skipping those, but I thought I have prepared and I really should do this. But the way it affected um, affected it was that I couldn't write because I was constantly shivering um, and I, I was not able to write at all. Um, so I did some extra time, as, as is in exams, under some conditions. But I was also given the additional help of uh, being able to type the exam. So because I couldn't really use my left side as such anyways, um, but I am right-handed, so it was okay. But I could only actually type, and um, I needed some extra help with in terms of timing and stuff. But this, in terms of side effects, it's just ch uh, chest pains, um, constant you know, shortness of breath. So I, I couldn't take a flight up the stairs you know, without running out of breath. So it, it, you know, it's those kind of things, but yeah, it, it, I think it does affect people differently. But definitely, chest pain is the main thing. I would say is the, the main side effect of this. I see. I mean, uh, you know, the, I was admire people that even though they had um, some, like they went, even though they went to difficult times, still they carried out with their life and I mean you, you managed your A level during that difficult time. It's it's I think it's a huge, huge thing I think that you should acknowledge that. And I think I mean people should acknowledge that as well that even though you never gave up. And but still, I mean the recovery has to be done. So um what is the motivation? Like what did help you to recover? I think um, the, the thing that I was told by the doctors was to rest and not stress. That was the main thing that I was told that would help. And obviously medicine. But um, what helped me was, you know, I I just listened to a lot of the Holy Quran. I would just constantly be listening. And it would put my heart to ease because my, um, my heartbeat would be very irregular at times. At times it would be very fast. At times it would be very slow. Um, and uh, the Holy Quran, honestly, it really helped me in the way that I was just listening to it 24-7. Um, I was just basically on, on the bed um, and I wasn't able to do much anyway. So I was just listening to that with translation and I felt like it gave me a lot of peace. And the other thing was my parents. Um, I honestly it broke my heart to see um, to see them like that because they were in so much pain to see me like that, uh, the way I was. And my dad, I'll tell you, he only came to the hospital once to see me because the other times he came, he sat outside in the car park and he said, I can't come and I can't look at you, um, in, you know, the condition you're in. And that really, uh, you know, I, I never forget that. And I, I really had to force myself to just get better somehow. Um, and I didn't want to keep saying, you know, I'm in pain and this and that. So the way I calmed myself was listening to the Holy Quran. And I think it really helped me. But definitely um, hearing those words, even now I'm just recalling my dad's voice saying, I can't see you like this. And he would come and sit outside for hours, but he would never come in um, because he was like, I just can't see it. So parents, um, definitely for them, I think mm. um, they were my biggest, yeah. <laughs> Motivation. Yeah, definitely. So, face and parents. 
the motivation she needed to recover from that difficult time, from that disease she had. Um, dear listeners, <clears throat> God has de- described himself as Ashafi, which means the healer, who has the power to grant health and healing. And a true believer always turns only to Allah for healing. <coughs> Sorry for that. And um, we have now just heard interviews, we have heard um, Dr. Muhammad Iqbal as well, about miracles which happened. Um, and uh, this is um, uh, what God has always said, that have faith on the un- uh, of, uh, of that per- uh, that being, uh, believe on him, and he is ready to, there to help you as well. Um we have reached the end of the show. I'm very grateful that you listened to today's show. I'm sorry again for the shortcoming uh, which happened during the show. Also, I apologize to Imam Tabim Abdaka that we couldn't call him again. Dear listeners, Voice of, Voice of Islam is all about education. Giving education and giving knowledge about Islam. And if you want to learn more about Islam, then do me a favor. Stay tuned with the Voice of Islam Radio. Or you can turn in tomorrow. Uh, the same time, um, where, we, where my colleague Toki uh, Ahmed will be there. And he will discuss new topics from the Islamic perspective as well. Um Tomorrow they will discuss Zero Discrimination Day and Jewish and Muslim coexistence. I think this is very interesting. Uh, and therefore, I think you should, again, turn in the same time and you should listen to that. Um, thank you for Daniel Nasser for uh, producing the show alongside with Sabia Saif and Tayyib Tahir and to our researchers, Sabai Jas and Mali Mahmood. Uh, also, uh, thank you to our technical support we had today um, with us, Armagan uh, Emmet. Thank you, and thank you to you, listeners, as well. Before we go, because the second segment was about rare disease and how Allah can help us, just remember you are breathing, you are still alive, so this means you are also blessed. And take good benefit of these blessings as well. Take good care of yourself as well. And um, always remember, to have trust in Allah and He can help you and support you as well. Uh, thank you for joining. May the peace and blessings of Allah be with you all.